You are listening to the teaching ministry of Valor Christian Center's Pastors Scott and Tina Witwan. We are going to take a look at the party platforms, and we're going to take a look at the Word of God. We're going to take a look at what people believe in, and we're going to compare it to the Word of God. Because no matter what you have registered for, you as a believer should be a Bible voter. Whether you call yourself an independent, a, a libertarian, a Democrat, a Republican, you need to first and foremost vote the Bible. And we're going to be talking today about religious liberty, so it'll kind of roll right in, into, into this. Amen? We're going to be talking about this, and this, this series is 2020 Season of Politics. This is part four, Religious Liberty. So go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron. Father, I thank you that as we open uh, your word today and as we look at what you have called this nation to, that you bring revelation to the hearer, we will be strict to stay true to doctrine, because you are truth. And we thank you, Father, that truth always destroys the lie. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Uh, and every week I've been reading this excerpt from an email that President Steve Riggle from Grace International uh, sent to the church, and it says, this upcoming election is not about two men. It's about two diametrically opposed ideologies. One will prevail on election day. I believe this election will decide the future of our nation. I trust you are speaking and leading those who follow you to vote a biblical worldview, life, marriage, the nuclear family, and God welcomed again in the public square. And so we've done that. We've talked about the two different ideologies, the biblical worldview and a secular worldview. We also talked about God and government. We talked about the Wuhan flu, you know, the COVID-19, and the fear that it has brought into the church. And God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but He gave us a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. And last week, we talked about the sanctity of human life. These are biblical issues, but society has made them wedge issues in order to bring about division. So today we're going to talk about religious liberty. And before I start, I need to thank David Barton. I didn't talk to him personally, but much of what, most of what I'm going to teach today comes out of his American Heritage Series. He's one of the most foremost experts on American history and has, I believe, the largest single collection of artifacts on American history. And so, though I don't generally grab just somebody else's materials and teach it, it's important that you hear this, and most of this is going to be unchanged. Go with me to Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1. We're going to start off with some scripture, and then we'll, we're going to jump into some history this morning. Uh, I'm going to go as quick as I can. When I first did this lesson, I had 38 pages of notes. 
On a typical Sunday, I have between five and ten, depending on how much scripture I have, because I put the scripture in to read it, and it makes longer. I have managed to pare it down to 27 pages, so I am going to go quick and do a lot of reading to try to get through as much of this as we can, because our time is short together. In Galatians 5.1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And you know that the writer of the Declaration of Independence quoted from Galatians 5 when he wrote, The pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is a quote taken from Galatians 5.1. In Genesis 1.28 and 2.15, it says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, speaking of man, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. The greatest gift God has given to mankind is free choice. God has given us free choice and made us responsible for our choices. Sometimes I wish I wasn't responsible for my bad choices, but I'm responsible for my choices. Amen? <laughs> All of them. That's right. And then in Job 8.8 from the New American Standard Bible, it says, Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. See, we need to know history. We need to know biblical history. It's very important. It's very important to understand our history biblically. But it's also important to understand the history we are living in now. History played a big role, think about it, in the life of Ruth, in Mordecai's life, and Haman. It was history that Ruth was able to bring to account to Xerxes. History is very important. And those who don't pay attention to history are due to repeat the mistakes of history. In 1878, Charles Kaufman's textbook, The Story of Liberty, it was used in schools for generations. And it said, if you do not see the divine hand working behind the scenes with what is going on in history, history will become an incomprehensible enigma. He was right. When Kaufman wrote his textbook, it covered the, the generations of the founding of this nation. And that textbook was used all the way up into the early 1900s. When you take God out of history, it becomes just a bunch of incomprehensible enigmas, a bunch of dates, a bunch of places, and a bunch of people. See, in the 1920s and 1930s, textbooks changed. They took their focus away from our religious founding to its secular interests. Focused more on the economics of history than on God's providential hand in history. Every major teacher of history up until this point, up until the 1920s, taught the providential view 
of history, God's involvement in the formation of our country. This always works better when I turn it on. There we go. George Bancroft, born in 1800, died in 1891. He's considered the father of American history. He taught that God's providence and history were as important as, important as the events that happened themselves. God's providence was just as important as the events that happened itself. Think about that with Moses in the Red Sea. God's providence, God's interventions, God's hand in the, in the parting of the Red Sea was just as important as the miracle itself. Daniel Webster said, history is God's providence in human affairs. And Patrick Henry said, I know no way of judging the future but by the past. We hear often from modern teachers and historians and those who, uh, that those who founded our country were mostly atheists, agnostics, and deists, secular in their beliefs. The three that they generally point to that they consider secular in their beliefs are Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson. But remember, there are about 250 founding fathers and yet they point generally to those three. A founding father, also called the framer, is someone who had a part in the birth and establishment of America as a nation. There were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 55 at the Constitutional Convention who framed the Constitution, the first Congress who framed the Bill of Rights, we know them as our amendments, numbered about 90. Then there are people who did not sign any of the documents, but they were instrumental in the formation of our country. Take this person, John Jay. He wrote the Federalist Papers and was the original Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And then here, Patrick Henry. He didn't sign any of the documents, but his impact on the revolution and the victories in Virginia would not have existed without him. He played a huge role in the history and making of our nation. Add them all up and you get about 250 founding fathers. The issue is we've only been taught to recognize a few men. What about the others? What about the seldom heard of founders, and how, what role did they play? Here's one that you probably haven't heard of, Benjamin Rush, born in 1745 and died in 1813. He was a signer of the Declaration, a ratifier of the Constitution, served in three different governmental administrations. He was an evangelist. One of his quotes says, I do not believe that the Constitution was the offspring of inspiration, but I am as satisfied that it is as much the work of a divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When he died in 1813, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams said 
He is one of the three most notable founding fathers, along with Ben Franklin and George Washington. But we don't ever hear about him. Why? Because he was an evangelist. They look at the secular people that they can pull out in order to try to take God out of our history. What about James Wilson, 1742 to 1798, and Stephen Hopkins, 1707 to 1785? What about Richard Henry Lee, 1732 to 1794, and many, many more? Do you know about 95% of the founding fathers were Orthodox Christians? 95% of the 250 were Orthodox Christians and very outspoken about their faith. You know, modern textbooks and, and modern educators would want you to think that, that, no, they were mostly secularists. They didn't share their faith. They kept it out of the public square. What is taught as history has changed over time, history hasn't changed. But what is being taught, as history has, and the list of founding fathers taught gets smaller and smaller. The textbooks from 1848 taught about all 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence. Our forefathers learned about the founding of this nation, the people who were involved in it. Current textbooks teach just a few of the least religious founders and then paint all the founders as being non-religious. Most paintings and pictures of the signing of the Declaration bring to front Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, which are then promoted as non-religious founders or considered the least. But least is a comparative term. And even these two men were more religious than most people are today. Benjamin Franklin, he recommended, and this is a quote, to teach Christianity in public schools. Does that sound non-religious? In Pennsylvania, oh, he did this in Pennsylvania, and he also worked to raise church attendance. Now, does that sound like somebody who's non-religious? Ben Franklin made a firm defense of Christianity when it was attacked by Thomas Paine in his book, the Age of Reason. Franklin signed numerous, cited numerous Bible verses to prove his point in calling for the establishment of chaplains and daily prayer at the Constitutional Convention. What about Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States? He recommended that the great seal of the United States depict a Bible story and that the Word of God appear in the national motto. As president, he negotiated treaties with direct federal funding to missionaries to evangelize the natives, and these were ratified by the United States Senate. Jefferson dated documents with, in the year of our Lord Christ. When we moved into the U.S. Capitol in November of 1800, one of the first acts Congress was to approve was the use of of the Capitol as a church building. That happened on December 4th, 1800. At that time, the Speaker of the House was John Trumbull. Guess who the President of the Senate was? Thomas Jefferson. 
Thomas Jefferson went to church there when he was the vice president and for eight years while president of the United States. Jefferson ordered the United States Marine Corps band to play the worship music at worship and church services at the U.S. Capitol. Now, wouldn't that be some kind of worship team? The United States Marine Corps. Now, does this sound like a man who is non-religious and doesn't believe that, that religion should be in the public square? I think Thomas Jefferson was very religious. History's says so. In 1803, President Thomas Jefferson did a treaty with the Kakaskiki Indians, where he gave federal funds to missionaries to the Indians. I mean, directly sending missionaries out into the native tribes. And now they tell us that Jefferson wanted to abolish religion and create an absolute wall of separation of church and state. But the facts of history do not support that. So secularists have sought out the least religious founding fathers to whom they can raise the question or cite an instance where they may not been wholly in favor of religious autonomy or sovereignty. And this is why they love to use James Madison. James Madison, born in 1751, died in 1836. Why do they do this? Because one of the last things that Madison did before he died was wrote what's called the Detached Memoranda. And in this, he said, he was on, and he notes that he was on the original committees that instituted chaplains and says he thinks that it may have been a mistake and that Congress should not have had chaplains. He goes on to say that he recognizes that he issued many religious proclamations and calls to days of prayer, fasting, thanksgiving, but says now he thinks it may have been a mistake. Now Madison becomes a good guy for the secularists because of this detached memoranda that he wrote late in life, but that does not change history. When the debate about the Constitution and the Declaration and the Bill of Rights were going on, Madison was a supporter of religious involvement in the public square. See, religious beliefs of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Let's talk about those. The Declaration of Independence was signed on August 2nd, 1776. Between July 4 and August 2nd, some who voted for the Declaration were called away to the service of their country and unable to actually sign the Declaration. Many who are seated in Congress now, or many who were seated now at the convention, had not been at the July 4th ratification and actually signed the declaration when it was approved. So let's talk about this guy, John Witherspoon. How many of you remember him? He was an ordained gospel minister. He has several published books of gospel sermons. He's responsible for two American Bible editions, including what is considered America's first family Bible in 1791. And as what is very interesting is even though that it contains the text of the King James Version of the Bible, King James is not mentioned anywhere. Why would they? They just spent time beating back 
the British Empire. An ordained minister. And a signer of the Declaration of Independence. What about Charles Thompson? Charles Thompson was a Secretary of Congress. And he and John Hancock are the only two founders to also sign the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. Charles Thompson also was responsible for the American, for an American edition of the Bible called the Thompson Bible. One of my favorite study Bibles, and I have it here today, is my Thompson Chain Reference Edition Bible. This was from the work that he did. Because his first translate, it was the first translation of Greek into English and took him 25 years to complete. And I still have it today and use it in the ministry. Now, did he sound like somebody who's non-religious? What about John Hancock? Now, we recognize him and know him from his signature. Because we were all taught in school that John Hancock's signature is so big on the Declaration of Independence because he said he wanted King George to be able to see it all the way from England. But what else do we know about John Hancock? John Hancock wrote two dozen prayer proclamations for his state. He calls on the people to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior even calling on the people of Massachusetts to pray and fast so that those who do not know Christ will come to Christ. Now, this is some kind of governor to have. He is the the governor of Massachusetts and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock. What about John Trumbull? He's the Speaker of the House and governor, becomes governor of Connecticut. As Speaker of the House, he was one of the people that voted to use the Capitol as a church building. He issued a proclamation where he called on support for the Society of Missionaries to preach the gospel to the Indian tribes, the state taking up a collection for missionaries. The governor of Connecticut, also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. What about this guy, Dr. Benjamin Rush? When he died in 1813, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams said that he is one of the three most notable founding fathers, as I mentioned before. He was an evangelist. And he said of the Constitution, I quote, in its form and adoption is as much the work of divine providence as any of the miracles recorded in the Old and New Testament. I read that before, but it's important. This guy was significant. He was a leading educator. He helped start five colleges and started the first college for women. He's called the father of American medicine. He trained 3,000 students for their medical degrees and numerous medical discoveries that we still benefit from today. He's the founder of America's first abolitionist society and was a leader for 40 years in the abolitionist movement. 
In 1791, he founded the Sunday School Movement in America, the First Day Society. He is the one that started Sunday schools and churches. In 1808, he started the country's first Bible society. His two main points, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and if people would read the Bible, it would diminish all social problems. Another quote. Leading by the Bi living by the Bible, mankind becomes both humanized and civilized. That's Benjamin Rush. We don't hear about him. What about this guy, Sam Adams? Now, we hear about the beer company, right? But what about Sam Adams, the founder? A quote from Sam Adams. I reply upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all of my sins. What about Robert Treat Payne? He said, I am constrained to express my adoration of the author of my existence in full belief of his forgiving mercy. What about Charles Carroll? Born 1737 and dying in 1832. He was the final surviving signer of the Declaration and died at age 95. A quote of his says, On the mercy of my Redeemer I rely for the salvation and on His merits, not on any works that I have done in obedience to His precepts. He said his faith was one of the chief reasons he entered into the American Revolution fighting, for the, uh, the, fighting to preserve religious liberty. He personally funded and built a house of worship. Now, does this sound like a non-religious founder? What about Francis Hopkinson? He was a church music director and choir leader. He is responsible for one of the earliest printed hymnals in 1767. What about Richard Stockton? Richard Stockton paid the ultimate price for this revolution. He was captured and tortured by the British, and when he was finally re rescued, he never recovered from his wounds. A quote from his last will and testament says, I think it proper here not only to subscribe to the entire belief of the great and leading doctrines of the Christian religion, such as the being of God, the divinity of the person and completeness of the redemption purchased by the blessed Savior, to exhort and change that the fear of God is the beginning of of wisdom. These are the people, these are the founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence, but we don't hear much about them and about their charge for religious liberty and about religion in the marketplace. But we also have 55 signers of the Constitution. Do you know the 55 signers of the Constitution, 52 of them were Orthodox Christians? You don't hear about that, do you? There are three that they consider secular in belief and consider them today 
as the writers of the Constitution. Most notably is James Madison. He's considered today the father of the Constitution. However, the founding fathers never considered him the father of the Constitution. George Washington and Ben Franklin also. And there is volumes and volumes. I started to put the stuff together on George Washington, and it would take me an hour to talk about all of the history of George Washington and his support for religious liberties, his faith as a Christian, the support from other people that attest to this. And so, but they point to him. And we'll talk a little bit about why here in just a second. And Benjamin Franklin. So let's talk about the writers, the framers, some of these 55 signers of the Constitution. At the signing of the Constitution, September 17, 1787, 35 that served in Congress, there were 35 that served in Congress at its original adoption. So let's talk about this guy here, Governor Morris. Governor Morris from Pennsylvania. Every time we invoke or debate the Constitution, we are discussing what he did. He was the final signer of the Constitution. Most active member at the Constitutional Convention spoke on the floor of the convention 173 times. And most notably, he penned the Constitution. You are looking at his penmanship, we the people. He advised France on the right end of their Constitution, advising them that above all, that education was teaching religion and man's duty towards God. Here's one of his quotes. We must teach religion in schools as a basis of morality. Now, does he sound like a non-religious signer of the Constitution? What about Abraham Baldwin? He was the chief founder of the University of Georgia, one of America's youngest theologians. At 21 years old, Yale offered him a professorship of divinity. He served as a military chaplain during the Revolution not only a Christian, but a minister of the gospel and a signer of the Constitution. What about Roger Sherman? He's the only founder to sign all four founding documents. He signed the Articles of Association in 1774, the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the Articles of Confederation in 1781, and the U.S. Constitution in 1789. He was instrumental in resolving the conflict between larger states and smaller ones. His, his, his solution, each state would get two senators. And that satisfied the smaller states because they would be equal in power with the larger states. But for the larger states, he came up with the idea of the House of Representatives, where states would be apportioned people based upon their size, satisfying the power for the larger states. It was he who came up with this idea, benefiting both large states and smalls through the, through the establishment of these two bodies, the Senate and the House of Representatives. He became a member of the first Congress and helped to frame the Bill of Rights. He was also a Christian, a theologian, and wrote a creed that was adopted by his church. And time prevents us from reading it, but it's worth going out and looking up. What about William Samuel Johnson? He was a leading educator of his day, became the first president of Columbia College. He was a speaker at public graduations. In his commitment, commencement address, he spoke specifically about the importance to reverence God and that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and quoting the 139th Psalm, verses 3 and 4, about redemption and the sacrifice of God's Son. 
And they try to tell us now that because of separation of church and state, religion can't be spoke about at commencements. One of our founding fathers in signing of the Constitution, the president of Columbia University, speaking at commencements address, did that very thing. What about Jacob Broom? He was a devout Christian and raised his children in the Christian faith. In February 24, 1794, he wrote a letter to his son, James. In it, he said, don't forget to be a Christian. I have said much to you on this head, and I hope an indelible impression is made. And what about this man, James Wilson? Considered early on as one of the fathers of the Constitution. He's in a select group of framers. He's one of the six people to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. One of the first six justices on the Supreme Court appointed by George Washington. The second most active member at the Constitutional Convention speaking 168 times on the floor. While on the Supreme Court, he came up with the idea to start law schools. He wrote the textbook for law schools. It became a three-volume set. And here's a quote from volume one. You cannot have good civil law if it is not based on divine law. That's the Supreme Court justice who established law schools. See, this is the opposite of taking the Ten Commandments out of the classroom, out of the courthouses. It's using the Bible as public policy. What about this gentleman here, James McHenry? He was aide to General, to General George Washington, served as a Secretary of War from 1796 to 1800. Fort McHenry that suffered a brutal attack by the British as Francis Scott Keyes wrote the Star-Spangled Banner was named after him. He was the founder of the Baltimore Bible Society, which is now the Maryland Bible Society. His declaration, public utility pleads most forcibly for a general distribution of the Holy Scriptures. These alone secure to society order and peace, and to our courts of justice and constitutions of government, purity, stability, and usefulness. In vain, without the Bible, we increase penal laws and draw entrenchments around our institutions. Bibles are strong entrenchments. Where they abound, men cannot pursue evil or wicked courses. That's powerful. What about James Madison, who they talk about being very secular in nature? In textbooks today, James Madison is considered a father of the American Constitution, though the founders didn't. In the first hundred years of the adoption of the Constitution, there were actually four people considered the founder of the Constitution. George Washington, Roger Sherman, Charles Coatsworth Pickney, and James Wilson. We know Washington, but what about the others, the founders that they point to? Today, we use Madison and think he's the guy who wrote it. The congressional record shows more often than not, Madison's proposals were rejected by the body. And even his Virginia plan was completely rejected as a non-starter. But why is this? Because in later years we found the writings where he appears to be non-religious because in his latter days he said, well, maybe we shouldn't have, have instituted chaplains. Maybe we shouldn't have made these proclamations. 
However, the historical record does not match that claim. As Madison was overtly religious in his writings, speech, speech and actions. And see, this, is, this shows the importance of teaching from textbooks about religious liberty as it was founded. 52 of the 55 at the Constitutional Convention members were from Orthodox Christian churches. This is why they saw no issue with prayer in the public square. God in a motto or in a pledge. But we only get two or three that they call secular founders. David Barton rightly says, whoever controls history controls the future. When you look at what happened after the signing of the Constitution, it's obvious that the documents and the intent was not secular but religious in nature. I had two quotes from James Madison. The happy union of these United States is a wonder. Their constitution, a miracle. Their example, the hope of liberty throughout the world. And we have staked the whole future of our new nation, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of our political constitutions upon the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments of God. Now, does that sound like somebody who's non-religious? But they don't point to that. They point to his final detached memoranda. What about Ben Franklin, who's considered also non-religious by the secular teaching establishment? Here's a quote from him. It says, I can hardly conceive a transaction of such momentous importance to the welfare of millions now existing and to exist in the posterity of a great nation should be suffered to pass without being in some degree influenced, guided, and governed by the omnipotent, omnipresent, and beneficent ruler in whom all inferior spirits live and move and have their being. That's quoting from Acts 17, 28. And I know of, of, of Franklin, and I don't have it here. He, spoke, he talked about when he actually went and attended a George Whitfield meeting, the great preacher during the great time of revival. And Franklin said, when I went, I was so compelled that I gave him my coppers. And as he taught more, I gave him my silver. And he says, before he was finished, I gave him my gold. He says, I will not be going back to that man's meetings again. <laughs> this was Benjamin Franklin. And these are the men that they look on and say, hey, look, they were non-religious, and we need a certain separation of church and state. Don't you know what Thomas Jefferson said and what he did? So let's finish. I'm going to close with talking about church and state, and then we're going to get to the party platforms, but then I'm going to close with this. They tell us that Jefferson, Jefferson wanted an absolute wall of separation of church and state, but the facts do not support that. Nowhere in the Constitution... I want you to listen to this. Nowhere in the Constitution does it mention separation of church and state. And for those of us who read it, have not, we have not found it. I have not found that phrase in there anywhere. In fact, the First Amendment to the Constitution was objected to by many religious leaders of the day. Do you know that? 
You know why? Because they said, hey, this new nation should not have any influence of government whatsoever, and therefore the Constitution should not talk about, these Bill of Rights should not talk about what freedoms we have because our freedoms are absolute. They were concerned that by, in the First Amendment, saying that Congress can make no law abridging the freedom uh, of religion or the exercise thereof, they were concerned that that meant at some point in history, Congress or uh, a ratification of the amendment could be changed and they could remove that, that they would have the authority. They didn't want to give government the authority at all over uh, religion or the church. They had had enough of that with, with British rule. The Declaration addressed many of the grievances the colonists had. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, set out to address each one of these. Let me go ahead and read the First Amendment of the Constitution. I wrote here, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. They were concerned that if this could be adopted, it also could be retracted. Many thought... Many thought that, uh, that this was the case. Thomas Jefferson's letter addressing church and state, written in response to the Danbury Congregation's letter in 1802, had nothing to do. In fact, is Jefferson makes it very clear that the separation wall of church and state will stop the government from inhibiting or stopping the public religious activity. When Danbury's congregation wrote this letter to Jefferson, he had been, just been elected to office. They, they, they congratulate him, say, it's great to hear, but we want to make sure that, that this, con, that this is, is true. But most notably about Jefferson in this First Amendment to the Constitution, Jefferson wasn't even in the country when the First Amendment to our Bill of Rights, the First Amendment to our Constitution was adopted. Jefferson, had, Jefferson actually says in, in, in writings that he had no input. He merely received correspondence of what had been adopted. And yet now the Supreme Court has looked at Jefferson and said somehow this letter that he wrote to, to this church holds constitutional weight. But Jefferson had no influence in it, had no input. If there does exist a constitutional wall of separation, then the wall is designed to keep the state out of religion. And, oh, it's keep it out of religion. And the sponsoring of a specific religion or interfering in matters of the church. They did not want government setting up another British church. The writings, words, and actions of the founders profoundly support their intended desire was for religion to be prominent and overt in the public square. So now let me read the party platforms. Last week we read the Democrats first. This week we'll read the Republicans' party platform first. Republicans' party platform says, We strongly support the freedom of Americans to act in accordance with their religious beliefs, not only in their houses of worship, but also in their everyday lives. Ongoing attempts to control individuals, businesses, and institutions of faith to transgress their beliefs are part of a misguided effort to undermine religion and drive it from the public square. 
We value the right of Americans' religious leaders to preach and Americans to speak freely according to their faith. The government is constitutionally prohibited from policing or censoring speech based on religious convictions or beliefs. That's the Republicans' stance. Here's the Democrats' stance. The paramount importance of maintaining the separation between church and state. We will reject the Trump administration's use of broad religious exemptions to allow businesses, medical providers, social service agencies, and others to discriminate. Number three, to enact the Equality Act. Now, we had to find out what the Equality Act is. According to Truth and Liberty Coalition, the bill that would remove religious liberty protections and even force churches to violate the tenets of their faith. Number four, religious freedom is a core American value and a core value of the Democrat Party. Democrats will protect the rights of each American for the free exercise of his or her own religion. Five, Democrats celebrate Americans' history of religious pluralism and tolerance, as well as the paramount importance of maintaining the separation between church and state enshrined in our Constitution. We have an election coming up, and it's important that we understand what and whom we are voting for. Amen? You have been listening to a recording from the teaching ministry of Valor Christian Center with senior pastors Scott and Tina Whitwam. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to pray this simple prayer with me now. Jesus, according to Romans 10.9, your word says, If I confess you as Lord and Savior and believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead, that you would come into my heart and I would be saved. I now confess and believe that you are my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, please contact our office so that we may rejoice together with you. Call Valor Christian Center at 480-545-4321. That's 480-545-4321. Or by email at info at valorcc.com. That's info at valorcc.com or by mail to the church address at 3015 East Warner Road, Gilbert, Arizona, 85296.